here's how the communication channels work in the world of F1. Only one person talks to the driver. You've only ever got the race engineer talking to the driver because in that moment when the driver is driving, what you don't want them doing is having multiple conversations in their ear. You know, it's not helpful to the situation. So there are protocols in place. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organizations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. I'm pleased to say that this podcast is brought to you in association with Lodge Court, who are experts in HR support. Are you worrying about employee performance, absences and leave? Are you struggling with attracting and retaining the best talent for your business? I personally know the people at Lodge Court and they can support you with every people issue you may face. So focus on what you do best and let Lodge Court deliver your HR support as an extension of your business with a tailored, flexible monthly routine package that is right for you and your people. Please do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I, I've got Paul Teasdale uh, on the show. Uh, good morning to you, Paul. Morning, Julian. Great to see you. Good to see you. Uh, you you're a coach and facilitator uh, with a focus on helping people perform uh, using insights and experiences from high-performing teams, especially F1. Uh, you spent six years working with the McLaren F uh, Formula One team. That's uh, where you got your, your insights from. And we will be exploring leadership lessons uh, from F1. So yeah. uh, before we get into that, uh, Paul, I'd love to know uh, what you love about what you do. Ah, always a great question to open with, Julian. And uh, um, I love helping people. I love those sort of aha moments that people have. And particularly when I bring these sort of lessons from the F1 world, the element, some of them, uh, those lessons are counterintuitive. Um, and some people are really like, oh, I didn't realize that. But the things that really resonate with me and the things that I really love about what I do is when people realize that high performance is accessible to them. And those things that they think are the realms of the great and the good and the rich and the you know all, where all the money's at. Actually, all of those practices, all of those leadership practices, all of those operational practices, um, data-driven decisions, all sorts of those things are accessible to them at their level to help them perform and be the best that they can. And once once you start getting people to realize that actually the, there are lessons to be taken from all sorts of places and I can apply them so that I can get that level of performance, then, you know, the world's your oyster. That's fantastic. And I, I love the idea that, you know, we can be inspired by something like, you know, Formula One, which is can be inspirational, but actually making it a tangible thing that, that you can have the high performance as well, which I think is, is always good. Because I think often sometimes inspiration can be so sort of far out there. We don't always, can't always feel attainable and taking it, uh, to to our own level, and so we are we are focusing a little bit on the on, on your lessons and, and what the lessons are in terms of uh, leadership from from an F one perspective. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to understand how would you describe the leadership style in the context of Formula One? Uh, it's an interesting one, um, and it's it, it's interesting from lots of different levels, and it's also interesting to see how it's moved on over the years. And that I think is a is a key element to what's made it so successful as a sport, as a as a um, and as a practice and a, and a leadership inspiration piece is that innovation happens at all levels in that industry, and it's not just about innovating the car and all the technological um, innovations that go with it. It's the willingness to learn and adapt, including leadership styles, that's been key. Um, so one of the key things I'd call out is you know if you look back in the day, it's always been a 
heavily passion-driven sports. The people who are in that sport are there for the passion. Believe it or not, there's not huge amounts of money <laughs> in a lot of those roles. There are big, there's big money to be had in some of the top level roles, but actually, you know, a lot of people are in there because it's a passion. They're truly passionate about the sport, about the what they do, how to make things better and the best that they can be. And over the years, that leadership style has probably moved from a view of the the technologically adept and the best people who are there move up through the ranks and they therefore become you know the sage on the stage the bit that's like when there's a problem they look to that leader to solve the problem and you know they're looking to it and that leader would naturally get involved in those problems as well so even those technical challenges back in the day you'd probably have people jumping in and saying right you need to do this with the car this is how to sort it this is the issue if you don't know this this is how to get access to that part they would know those ins and outs and that has moved and consciously moved to uh, something one of the key lessons i pull out is what they call uh, decisions at the point of most knowledge so how do you make sure that decisions are made where there is the most knowledge for the problem at hand? And that takes, you know, it's easy thing to say, as you say, when there's a problem with the car and it's, you know, um, you need to get it out onto the uh, start line before the race starts and there's a problem with the car, you've got two minutes to go. Who has the decisions as to what to do and how to fix that problem? Traditionally, that would be a leader coming in and directing and saying, right, you need to do this, this, and this. Actually, what you really need to do in, from a leadership perspective is make sure and put in all the practices so that your people who are closest to that problem, the mechanic who is sitting, you know, literally lying on the ground, you know, looking under the car with his spanners and, and saying, right, you make the decisions as to what to do. And you know that you've got the authority to make those decisions as to what's the safest and the best for the performance that we're trying to drive. And as a leader, your job is not to do that. And I think that's one of the key lessons that you take from leadership is what's your lesson, uh, what, what is your role and what isn't your role in those situations? So really, yeah, taking the, the, those kind of things and seeing my role as a leader in those situations is twofold. One, it's to make sure that my people are safe and I can check on the decisions that they're making and I can listen to what they're saying and how they're interacting. And then there's another lesson that I pull out, which is uh, called look for the eyes. So if you're a leader in those times of high stress and high, um, highly important uh, sort of challenges and things are going on and your team is trying to solve those problems, where do the eyes go to? If you've got a team and all of the, uh, those team are looking at the most junior person in that team for inspiration and, and drive and, and focus, that's the leader in your team. You know, And they might not be in a leadership position yet, but they are a future leader that you can pull through because the team is already trusting them innately in that those times of challenge to help them through. And that's what you need from a leader. You need people who the team will um, respect, look up to, and look to in those times of need. That's interesting about the, uh, I get this right, the making the decisions at the point of greatest knowledge. Is that right? Is that, yep, is that yep. right? Yeah, that's it. Um, and that to me is, it, it seems like it's that an empowering sort of culture, isn't it? Empowering yep. people to make a decision, feel safe to make a decision and to, who are closest to it and know 
more about it than the leader do and that's fine because that's we're all specialists and and that's important to have how do you create that culture how have you seen that in organizations create that culture where there's more empowering and more that you know making those decisions at the point of, of greatest knowledge um the first thing is to recognize it and to, to actually call it out and to help people realize that when decisions are being made the leaders in that organization are either micromanaging or they're stepping in they're overriding decisions that have been made with people and to help them realize that actually you know why you know it's the classic case of why ever why have a dog and bark yourself you know you you're employing great people to do great work you as a leader your job isn't to do that work it's to make sure that that work is done and to help those people with the environment and the the setup to allow them to do that so it comes with that recognition first and that sort of inward focus uh, what are, what are our behaviors what's the what are we doing in those times of stress and is that productive and uh, to the success that we're trying to drive because if, if it's actually counterintuitive in the long run then that's the realization point actually yeah we might need to think about doing something different here and how do we do something different well we can start to empower our people through making sure that that is communicated people need to feel trusted and they need to feel that you've got a level of vulnerability as a leader you know if if you if they don't feel as if they've got the opportunity to shout out and say no in those times of high stress then you will have to step in you've got to empower people and show people that um and i think i was reading a, a book the other day um and they talked about the the sort of navy seals and some of the training that goes along there and in practice and they have the debriefs and a debrief is an absolute critical after action review however you want to call it a critical part of the whole process is about learning from that and saying actually if you saw me next to a window there and i you know the window might be a bit dusty because that's the environment we're in I could have been shot by a sniper and you didn't say anything to me. What would happen there? Well, I'd be shot. And then, you know, we wouldn't have the success that we're trying to drive. The team would be one down. There'd be you know, bigger consequences. So you've got to feel, if you see me as a leader doing something that isn't right, you've got to feel able to say, get away from that window, get down, stop doing that in a way that is advances your team along to the goals that you're trying to drive. And I think that's the, if you realize that uh, accountability and empowerment doesn't just come, you don't just say you're empowered now, let's go. You've got to help people along with that to show them that they can trust that in those situations, they can step in and they won't feel the wrath <laughs> or be overridden or, or, or have the, um, make themselves feel uh, themselves vulnerable or uh, disrespected or whatever it might be in that moment. So there's a lot of vulnerability as a leader that helps you understand and help your people realize that, yes, you are empowered. And I really mean that. Uh, you're tapping in there to what I would call um, psychological safety, where you feel this sense of you can challenge a leader or, as you say, take the your leader who's just about to be shot at the window, pull him <laughs> down and say, you know, get out of the way because you're challenging him in a sense, in a, and obviously in a very positive way there. And you mentioned sort of vulnerability and you know, I had a great definition of psychological safety is where 
vulnerability is rewarded and and it's it's good to be vulnerable and and it all starts as you say with the leader and i think that people always always realize the power and impact of of role modeling is really a powerful way of creating behavior creating cultures creating change by you modeling something of how you want it to be and that's being vulnerable own up to mistakes sharing things challenging your boss all that sort of in front of people in, in obviously kind respectful way uh, it's really important. Um, when I look at F1, when I, obviously I know it's not just about race day. There's more to it than race day. Yeah. Um, sure. um, but on the day, you know, and obviously the whole, not the whole world, but certainly eyes are on them. And it's a really high pressure situation. And yeah. I don't know if many businesses get involved in such high pressure environments. And, and within that context, you know, what I observe is, communication is quite key with that yes. and so how do we you know create good communication i guess approach uh, in a high pressure situation because often when we're high pressure sometimes the leader reverts to type and may go a bit autocratic and everything else how do you maintain a the empowerment approach but also that communication dialogue yeah um so it's a deliberate practice so uh, communication is a core skill at any level in that whole team. And as you say, it's not just the race weekend. There's a lot to go through the week, the practice, the setup, the learnings. How do you um, make decisions on the day and communicate those throughout the team? So um, there are deliberate communication uh, channels and protocols. And I think, you know, this is um, something that is very uh, time dependent in the world of F1. It isn't necessarily as time dependent in a lot of other organizations, but it can be. Um, And in those times, you actually need to be clear as to when we come to these situations, how are we going to communicate to each other? Um, And I've worked with a lot of external clients. So my role when I was at McLaren was to go out to external um, organizations and help them take the methodologies and the ways of working, maybe bring in some technologies and some of the clever people who did analytics and modeling and all sorts of wonderful stuff. But to actually help them understand the practices and the uh, the approaches that can really work. And we would often talk about, right, here's how the communication channels work in the world of F1. You don't have, you're only one person talks to the driver. You've only ever got the race engineer talking to the driver because in that moment when the driver is driving, what you don't want them doing is having multiple conversations in their ear. You know, it's not helpful to the situation. So there are protocols in place. And if you actually listen in on the radio during a a weekend, virtually nothing is said for the majority of the race. It's only in times when something needs to happen, a key point needs to be communicated, is the actual communication put in place. And when it does, there are practice routines for how to put that across. How do I be as concise and clear as possible when it comes to saying what I need to do. There's no point in saying, oh, you might need to come into the pits in the next few uh, laps. Possibly we'll see what happens. And, you know, by the way, Derek had a great weekend and and Jane going off. And, you know, none of this is relevant in that situation. And recognising there are high-pressure, highly important um, positions that you need to allow to get on with their job at those moments in time. And those principles can be applied into all sorts of different environments. Uh, For example, we used to work with um, uh, manufacturing organizations where they would have changeovers um, uh, of their plant. 
And when that happens, the quicker you can make the changeover, just like a pit stop, the more productivity you can get out of the line. So there's no point in having lots of communication during the changeover. You need to have that communication prior. You need to be clear as to who is doing what in those situations. And when something goes wrong or when communication needs to happen, let's practice how we do that. Um, and that can be applied. It doesn't have to be in manufacturing. Some same principles in the world of finance, the world of oil and gas drilling, all sorts of different uh, supermarket shelf stacking. We, we did some great work with as well. So it can be applied to any situation, but it's communication as a deliberate practice so that you are clear as to who's saying what, how you're communicating, and what do you mean when you say certain things. So this is almost putting in standard operating procedures in some sense of yep. how you're going to communicate uh, in terms of your approach, your style, your timing, your frequency, everything. And, and and it's almost when that situation happens, you're already, and I guess the military are probably a similar way of thinking. And I think we often see that as quite regimented and, and quite sort of fixed, but actually having that framework really probably helps contain a, a more smoother precise communication doesn't that exactly and if you are practiced in the basics and the things that generally happen um and you are aware of the things that are either likely to or possible to happen in those critical times so when you see um over a race weekend if you're watching the coverage for instance you might see the teams going out and practicing pit stops and they do a couple of things that are interesting one is they often practice in their shorts and t-shirt you know not in their full gear and they are just practicing at walking pace. They're not trying to do it in two and a half seconds or whatever it might be at the time. They're walking through the, the process and they're talking to each other and saying, right, this is what I'm doing here. This is my situation. Right, this is a standard pit stop. What happens if we need a new nose? What happens if the front wings come off? What do we do then? You know, in those situations, and you can look back and you can be inspired by historical events. It's amazing the number of people who, um, when you look it in, um, I've got a big history in manufacturing, for instance, and it's actually, you know, oh, this downtime is a one-time event. Well, it's a one-time event that's happened virtually every week for the past year. <laughs> you know, so it, it might be slightly different, but it's the same same thing that's happened. So when those events happen, you can be practiced for it. It doesn't have to be for the exact thing, but you've got an approach and you've got that framework, as you say, to uh, to how to do it. Um yeah, that seems to me it ties into um, almost building resilience, really, because you know resilience is is that ability to overcome, adapt, and and persevere. And obviously, during a, a race, for example, things go wrong because yeah. nothing ever yeah. goes to plan. Whether the, the tires wear down quicker than they thought, the front comes off, all sorts of stuff happens. And I know I talk to a lot of organisations about building resilient processes in place where you. Yeah you almost, and it sounds quite negative, scenario plan, the what-ifs. Yeah. You know, and I worked with a, a team of rowers who were rowing around Great Britain, and we they did drills, you know, did like man-over-board drills. Right. Hopefully it'll never happen, yeah. but you have to do it. So when it does happen, you can just get on with it. And I guess those sort of principles apply, certainly with F1 and within leadership, don't they? They do. I mean, you only have to look at, um, I'm a big rugby fan as well, going to watch the uh, the England rugby recently, it, somebody gets sent off uh, just before the first half, you know, you go down to 40 men, those people are practicing during the week. Occasionally, one of the, and this is the job of a leader, 
to just randomly go, right, you're off, you're down to 14 men. How are you going to cope now? And that's about also another way of putting the empowerment and the decisions back into the people of most knowledge is to say, right, you know the principles. We've talked through what we need to do. You know how we need to play. We've talked about the um, the, the scenarios. Now I'm going to have one of those people come off and, and, and they're, they're not going to be on the pitch anymore. How are you going to organize yourself on the pitch now? And that's the same in, uh, that you can do in any organization. I've uh, worked in sort of airport operations, for instance. It's like, what happens if, you know, those uh, those um, pre-action reviews or um, I've got a friend of mine who works in the, who was ex-military. I think they call them action on. So it's like the action on uh, being ambushed at this point is to do this, this and this. Action on us losing um, control of our equipment is this. Mm. So it's, you understand those key areas that could have an impact on your performance and you agree what the key principles are. Mm. You might practice some of them because you, you need to get used to it, but actually the action on a, a front nose cone coming off, the team is already prepared for that because they have understand uh, understand what needs to happen, why it needs to happen, and how they're going to adapt in that moment mm. in time. And again, building on that is is not only because obviously we don't know what exactly is going to happen, and we might not have scenarioed planned a situation. But it's you may have scenarioed a plan of if things go wrong, this is how we're going to deal with this, how we're going to manage it, and facilitate it through, and how we're going to communicate. And then you talked earlier on about you know debriefing, which I, I feel that a lot of organisations don't do enough of, yeah. you know, and whether that's a success or a or a failure you need to debrief because that's where you learn. That's where you gather Intel for what you do next and how you adapt things and change things. And I think more and more organizations need to do, create that sort of debrief. And just on the decision-making, just want to, you know, F1, they're making decisions that are quite risky and they've got to balance the whole safety thing. And Mm. I'd be interested to understand how as a leader, within that context and how we can see take the sort of parallels and learnings, you sort of balance the sort of taking a risk and pushing the business somewhere, but also balancing the, I'll say safety, but the sort of um, um, sustainability of the business, making sure it's grounded and yeah. financially resilient and all that sort of stuff. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, again, it's about understanding um, what are the results that you're trying to drive so the easy bit in the world of F1 is we want championship points. That's the results that you, you're aiming towards and you get there. And any organization, you know, you might want to say we want profit or we want performance, whatever it is. That, that's an easy thing to say from a, uh, from a results perspective. What people don't articulate enough, I don't think they don't know about this, but they don't tend to articulate it and make sure it's very clear, is what are the boundaries of those uh, of achieving that performance? What are the things that we want to make sure we're doing? We're getting that result, and we're also driving a sustainability agenda. We're also being safe. We're also, um, you know, working towards fan engagement in in that sense. So it's about understanding what are those strategic priorities of the organisation, mm-hmm. and using those as a framework to um, to frame what success means to you. Um, so it, it, you know, as I say, in the world of F one, you've got to be within the regulations, and this is where it starts to become quite applicable. Is that 
yes, you want a, a, a result, but you are limited by regulations. All organizations are limited by the regulations of, of applying there. Some may choose to play more in the gray areas of regulations. Some may choose that because of the risk involved that they um, are going to stick very black and white to the regulations or, or, uh, or pl even play safer below the, the, that level. Uh, similar can be for sustainability, for instance. Some people might want to say, right, we, we just want to have the, uh, a minimum uh, sort of get onto the dance floor kind of level of, of, of impact on sustainability. Some might say, we want to go above and beyond. That's what where we are going to differentiate ourselves. Therefore, you need to think about that when you are taking actions. And this is one of the, the frameworks I help people with is that results come first, both in terms of what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it, followed by what are the actions that you've got at your disposal to impact those results? And how do those actions impact those sort of multivariant sides of things? You know, so if you were to, to take an action as to um, do I pit once or twice in a, in a race, for instance, or do I change the design of a car? All those things have an impact. They're at your disposal to um, to impact the results you're trying to drive. But actually, people need to decide on those actions. So the um, who are those people and how are those people set up? How are they motivated? Have you got the right people in place mm. with the right levels of expertise? And then once you've got the right people in place, it's what insights do they need to actually help them make the best decisions that have the overall best impact it's never as simple as one one set result you know you can achieve something um in a way that is actually negative for you in the long run and i'll give you an example of this in a minute from from my experience but uh, uh just following on this final bit of framework you need what insights do your people need what are the bits of information and uh and data that you can present to them in such a way that it helps with the decision and that's where I differentiate the word insights. It's actually it's the way in which you bring information together and mm. present it to people so that they know roughly how it's going to impact the decision that they're making. And then finally, um, there's the data. So uh, I've got this rapid performance framework. So results, actions, people, insights, and data. And data comes last. And you might think in the world of F1, with it being so data-driven, that you want more data is better. Actually, you want the smallest possible data set that drives the insights that your people can act upon to give you the results. And the reason for that is generally with a car, for instance, you can get more data from a car, but it requires a sensor. Uh, it requires some sort of telemetry, which implies weight, which slows your car down and has a negative impact on your performance. So you actually don't want to have more and more data. You want to have less and less. So it's identifying that minimum data set and this is something that I help people with a lot, which is who's driving what data your people need to make the best decisions? Are you pushing reports to them? You're pushing data at them in such a way that they are drowning in, in all of that data. Uh, and are they getting insights from that data in the way you're presenting it? Or are they having to do cognitive you know, load in terms of, what does this data mean in my situation? How does it help me with the with mm. the um, the response that I'm going to make? An interesting um, uh, sort of anecdote here. I sat in with um, one of the hospitals uh, with a team that were looking to have their monthly rounds on uh, it was prostate cancer pathway, 
So they've got a, a group of about 50 individuals under their care who they are deciding what's the next step. So this month, how are these individuals going to be progressed? Do we keep on the same treatment? Do we do something different? They've got about 20 people in the room. And the first thing, everybody's got to print out of uh, all of these 50 individuals and their, their key details. And you've got hematologists, oncologists, all sorts of specialists in their areas. And the first thing on the list is, right, we've got an individual here. He, is, uh, his, he was born in 1977. And, you know, he's, and, and you just see at that point in time, everybody switches off like that. Because they're going, right, 1977, that must mean it must be 45. Right, okay. Or is it 46? Depends when his birthday is. Or maybe four. And you can just see people switching off in that moment. Hmm. And the actual insight that those people needed was which age bracket is this individual in? Because it has an effect on the decisions as to, you know, if you've got a younger person, you might want a more aggressive uh, treatment or you might be less risky in certain areas. But it's actually really if you've got a younger person with um, other metrics, maybe their BMI, their height, their weight, you know, all those things combined mean that they are at this level of risk compared to somebody else. So why not present that data to the whole team in a way that they use? So give them that visual of, 40, you know, they're in the 45 to 50 bracket. They are, you know, this, uh, this weight and height and um, smoker, non-smoker, whatever it is that, that's there. And therefore, they are in this bracket from a risk perspective. And that helps all of that cognitive load is taken off. And it might seem small, but in that moment where people are making big decisions, you don't want them thinking about how do I convert a date into an age? So, And there are so many moments like that that you can have in any organization where if you truly look as a leader how am I helping my people make better decisions? Well, am I? Is the reporting that I'm giving them, is the reporting that they're they're asking for truly helping them there, or are they? You know, they've got two reports and they're looking from one side to another as to where well, stat and that. So I've got my BMI here, I've got my height there, I've got my age there, and I'm trying pull all that together, help them with making the decisions, and that's where, as a leader, you can start to see if you're looking out for your people and saying. Where is your cognitive load being taken hmm. such that you know I can release some of that? There's so much to be done with with technology and data and analytics these days, but it's got to be done in the right way. And if you take that sort of rapid performance approach, then that's really helped people to have a framework for thinking that through and getting that right. That's really helpful. I, I like the idea of <clears throat> being more aware of the information, the data you give to your team or what you request as well um, <clears throat> to make sure that it's not creating that cognitive load. I think that's really, really helpful insight because I think often we do think we need to have more information, more data, but actually sometimes you know, the old added less is more. And I think it, it's more powerful and more robust. I'm also making sure you've got the right stuff. But as you say, rather than giving somebody the year of birth, you know, give them their actual age because uh, yeah. they'd have to work it out themselves. Um, very simple, but very powerful as well. Yeah. Um, th this has been brilliant, uh, Paul. I really thank you for your your insights. And I think there's some re some real strong, obviously, parallels. You obviously work with clients to do this exact thing, take those learnings from F1, and you yeah. put it into the world of work. Um, if people want to connect with you and want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? 
Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, so you find me on LinkedIn, probably be linked into here and maybe in the show notes, but I think I'm under Paul James Teasdale. Um, um, and you can also see my website, uh, paulteasdale.co.uk. And you can connect with me there. I've got a, um, the first thing that comes up there is um, an opportunity to have a, a free, no obligation chat with me, um, find out if and how this can be of value to you. And that's all I want to do is I want to add value back to people. So if you want to find out more, then, then reach out and uh, I'm more than happy to have a chat um, and make this high performance more accessible to people in all sorts of organizations. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today, Paul. Thank you, Julian. An absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you like this episode, then please rate, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, I coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions, and I will help you go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation. You can contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com. Thank you.